You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. The tech sector being not just one of the greatest creators of wealth, but one of the greatest creators of wealth for the 1%. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. There's already positive change that's going on uh, within organized sports. We're reducing this chance of second injuries. There is no 100% secure website. There is no 100% security for your system. This is KCBS In-Depth. When it comes to climate change, there's plenty of ambitious goals out there. There's, of course, the Paris Climate Agreement, aiming to cap global temperature rise at 2 degrees Celsius. Then here in California, we've set our own targets, including the goal of reducing greenhouse gas emissions significantly over the next 10 years. And the other ambitious goal of shifting to 100% carbon-free energy sources by 2045. But once the declarations have been made and the photo ops taken, what do all these goals and targets really add up to? I'm Keith Menconi. This is KCBS In-Depth, and today on the program, we're going to be focusing on some of the climate goals that have been set close to home, that is in California and in the Bay Area, and trying to figure out if we really are going to meet them, how exactly do we get there? To lay out this climate roadmap, we're joined on the program today by three climate watchers. First up, we're joined by Ellie Cohen, CEO of the Climate Center. It's a nonprofit based in Santa Rosa advocating for climate-friendly policies in California. Ellie Cohen, thanks for being on KCBS In-Depth. Thank you for having me. Also joined right now by Alex Portashaver. She is the Senior Sustainability Coordinator of Drawdown Marin. That's a county-backed program aiming to spur climate reduction at the local level. Alex, thank you as well. Thanks for having me. And last up, we have on J.D. Morris, the energy reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. J.D. Morris, welcome to you as well. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's actually start with you. We've been uh, talking about so far a number of climate goals that have been set in California. Bring our listeners up to speed if they missed some of those debates. How did these climate goals come about? What's the history there? So it actually all goes back to 2006 um, when California passed Assembly Bill 32, otherwise known as the California Global Warming Solutions Act. That was signed into law by former Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, and it required California to reduce emissions to 1990 levels by 2020. Ten years later, in 2016, is when the legislature followed up with SB 32, which set a goal of getting to 40 percent below 1990 levels by 2030, signed by Governor Jerry Brown. And so that's what we're working with now. Um, But it is also worth noting that Since then, California has set some even more ambitious goals. As you referenced, uh, former Governor Jerry Brown signed an executive order calling for California to uh, reach net zero carbon emissions by 2045. And then after that, to actually start um, pulling more carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere than we emit. And, of course, we also have SB 100, which uh, set a really ambitious goal of getting California to 100% renewable electricity by 2045. So after we hit that 2030 mark, which is going to be pretty difficult, there's still a lot more work um, that we've set ourselves out to doing. Mm. So as you suggest, uh, a lot on the horizon still to be done. But also, as you suggest, some of these goals have been on the books for quite a while already. We've already had plenty of time to work on them. How have we been doing so far? 2020 was a goal itself. Yes. So we actually met the 2020 goal several years early. So we're ahead of schedule on that one. Um, but if you look at where those gains come from, it it gets a little complicated to kind of assess, um, you know, where we're at in terms of the 2030 goal, because if you look at um, 
how we got to the 2020 goal so early, you'll notice that you'll see a, a very uh, precipitous decline in emissions from the electric sector, which is highly regulated. California can basically, uh, I mean, literally dictate where utilities like PG&E get their energy from, and that's what's been happening. Um, but in order to get to where we need to go, I think California really needs to start finding gains um, in other sectors, particularly transportation, which is the largest sector and source of emissions. And that uh, has been a very um, stubborn area in terms of greenhouse gases. Emissions there actually uh, increased a couple years ago, but I think they like more tapered off in the last count. Um, and but you know, reaching the 2030 goal is going to require uh, some. It's going to be a really heavy lift um, mm. to make a dent there. And I do think there have been some studies. Um, I, I can think of one off the top of my head that have um, tried to kind of sound the alarm about how we're we're not moving fast enough to get right. into the 2030 goal. So yeah, one of the figures that I saw is that we're going at about half the rate that we need to to get there by 2030. So it's a hard goal. It's a hard goal. They set ambitious goals, and it's going to take some ambition to get there. And so a little bit later in the program, I'd like to go through point by point all the ways that we could go there, even above and beyond what probably most people are most familiar with, which is changing out where we get our power sources. There's a lot of other stuff on the table that's worth considering as well. But before before we get there, let's say a couple more words about uh, Ellie Cohen and your group, the Climate Center. Uh, once again, so you've actually have been putting together your own roadmaps of sort for how we can reach these goals or perhaps even more ambitious goals and telling Californians out there that, you know, these are the things that need to be done to have these effects on our climate emissions. And uh, again, let's dig into that a little bit later. But uh, before we get to that, I think that you have also made another interesting point that is, in your view, the e goals that California has set as ambitious as they are may not be ambitious enough. Yes, they are not ambitious enough based on the latest science and the climate reality globally. Mm. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is a group of scientists from countries from all over the world through the United Nations, uh, concluded in their 1.5 degrees Celsius report from a year and a half ago that we have to cut emissions essentially in half globally. And pull from the atmosphere upwards of a trillion tons of carbon dioxide equivalents, those greenhouse gases that we've already dumped into the atmosphere, especially over the past few decades, in order to get back to a safe climate. They're defining a safe climate as keeping warming in the industrial era, era since roughly 1880 to below 2 degrees Celsius or somewhere around 3.5 to 4 degrees Fahrenheit. So what we're talking about, if you think of the human body and having a temperature, we're talking about keeping the planet out of the emergency room. If you have a temperature that's 4 degrees hotter, you would be very, very seriously ill if you had that for an extensive period of time and your temperature was going up. That's what's happening with the planet right now. So the latest science is telling us not only that we have to cut emissions in half, and that's conservative because that's from a consensus process of scientists all over the world. So that's the lowest common denominator. But we also know that in order to secure a safe climate, to get back to lower temperatures overall and to less warming in the atmosphere, that we're going to need to take actions at the state and local and international levels simultaneously. Mm. For us in California, we've been leaders on climate change globally. Uh, in the past few years, actually some emissions, as JD referred to just before, have actually gone up. And even though we celebrate achieving those 2020 goals, they're the low-hanging fruit. Mm. We need to do quite a bit more, and we're going to need to accelerate our climate policies in order to make the difference we need to make. 
All right. Let's bring in uh, the last voice of one of our guests uh, here today. Again, that's Alex Portashaver uh, with the Drawdown Marin. And a lot of the work that you are focused on is bringing members of the community in so that they can give their input as to how they'd like to see these goals executed. Exactly what do members of the community want to see as far as the climate change policy goes? And I can imagine some of our listeners may feel that that's somewhat of uh, an esoteric piece of this puzzle. How are these decisions getting made at the local level? But to hear you tell it, it it is really an integral part of how we're going to solve some of these big problems. So lay that out for us. Sure. So the local level is an amazing place to be because you get to interact with community members. You get to hear what matters to them. You get to hear what they're willing to do. And that's really important. So uh, J.D. was talking about transportation emissions. Well, everyone is driving a car or not. They're making a decision. And at the local level, you really get to talk with them about, okay, Here's the deal. We have a large a large portion of our emissions come from the, come from the transportation sector. What are you actually willing to do to help reduce those, right? Mm-hmm. And that's really where reality reality comes into play. So you can set all the lofty goals you want, but if you can't get people out of their vehicles, if you can't get people to carpool, if you can't um, incentivize people to take public transit, then we're nowhere. So a big part of your job is actually having those conversations with people in Marin County and feel, feeling out what they're actually prepared to do? Exactly. So through a series of uh, meetings and working groups, we ask people those questions. What are you willing to do? What do you think are the local solutions that we should be implementing? And a a key component of that is not just um, working with the choir, we call them, meaning the people that always show up, the Mm -hmm. environmentalists, but people from lots of different communities, uh, different socioeconomic backgrounds, um, different races, young people, older people, because we all have to play a part in this. Mm -hmm. And it's really important to understand um, the different perspectives that each of those groups brings. Mm -hmm. All right. And uh, so if we're going to get this right, you need buy-in from all those people. Yeah. Well, real quick, before we move on, I want to remind our listeners that you are listening to KCBS In-Depth, our weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I am Keith Manconi. Today in the program, reducing climate emissions. Well, communities throughout California have signed on to the goal, but what exactly have they signed up for? We're hearing more about what it'll take to reach those goals from Ellie Cohen, once again, CEO of the Climate Center in Santa Rosa, Alex Portashaver, who we just heard it from a second ago, Senior Sustainability Coordinator of Drawdown Marin, as well as J.D. Morris, the energy reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. And let's pick up on that theme of why the local angle matters and uh, turn that back to you, Ellie Cohen. Why is it, you know, we we hear that California plays a huge role in reducing climate emissions, especially as at the national level, uh, the U.S. is stepping back from uh, those commitments in a lot of ways. So so we, we've heard a lot about why California's role in this matters. Why why does the city county level matter? Why should Bay Area residents feel like they're a part of this, too? Thank you for that question. One of the biggest sources of greenhouse gas reductions in electricity in California has actually been through what we call community choice aggregations or community choice energy. Uh, The Climate Center played a significant role in helping to launch that and to grow it. Five or six years ago, maybe there were two in Marin County and Sonoma County. Today, there are 19 CCAs across California and when that we, serve... When we talk about community choice, we're talking about essentially clean energy alternatives rather than whatever PG&E might be burning to get you that energy. 
Yes, but even more so, it's actually community managed. Mm -hmm. It is not an investor-owned private utility whose mm -hmm. number one drive is profit-making for their shareholders. It's actually community-owned and managed. And that makes a big difference because people are looking out for, number one, the health and well-being of the members of those communities. Mm. So what has happened over these past several years is that we now have 19 CCAs and a number of others that are online to come into being sometime soon. They serve 88% clean power, that means greenhouse gas free, to 11 million Californians, a quarter of the state. It has been one of the fastest ways that we've reduced emissions. And again, it's taking it away from the investor-owned utility and putting it in the hands of local government. Mm. Very, very powerful. So just to pipe in there for a second, so uh, folks who are listening understand um, exactly what that is. Community choice aggregators are, uh, they ex very much have exploded in popularity across California. Um, they're, they only serve the role, though, of buying power on behalf of their residents. That energy still has to be distributed through the uh, poles and wires owned by PG&E or other utilities. So I just wanted to clarify that. Mm. So that's the clean energy portion of this conversation. And uh, like I said, I feel like a lot of people are probably most familiar with that portion of the conversation. When we think about going green, we think a lot about how our power supplies are going to go green. But there are a lot of other goals that uh, people should be keeping in mind as we think about how we're going to reach these 2030 and 2045 goals ahead of us. Uh, and uh, important to highlight, too, that a lot of uh, cities really have made this very publicly a part of their plan for the years to come. Uh, San Francisco last year declared a, uh, a climate emergency. Other cities in the Bay Area have done so as well. Oakland, Berkeley, Hayward, many uh, signing on to this. So I guess where I want to go next in this conversation, uh, Ellie Cohen, is if you could lay out for us what does the vision of these cities in 2030, if we were really to follow through on all this, what would that look like? And let's kind of break this up into portions, starting with transportation. So we put in the work 10 years from now. How is transportation different in the Bay Area than it is right now? We will have substantially uh, accelerated the phase out of fossil fuel vehicles of all kinds. So we'll be seeing uh, um, many more electric vehicles, perhaps hydrogen-powered vehicles, many more shared vehicles, autonomous vehicles. Many of us will give up our cars and we'll have an app on whatever our phones will be like at that time. And we'll have a car come pick us up from wherever we are and take us where we want to. And they will be completely computerized and uh, um, automated and all fueled by clean energy, whether it's uh, from solar power and in backup batteries, or it could be from hydrogen and other sources. So we're talking about greater introduction of hydrogen, greater introduction of electric vehicles. Yes, and electrification of everything, actually. Mm. Um, but from a transportation point of view, also many more uh, housing units built in um, areas that are hubs for transportation to jobs mm -hmm. so that we do not have more urban sprawl. One of the reasons that sprawl is so bad is that the further people are away from jobs, the more they have to travel, and often greenhouse gas emissions go up with that. If we have people living closer to where their jobs are and closer to mass transit, we can reduce those emissions significantly. Uh, big change, another tall order. That's uh, something that obviously California has been struggling with for some time. Let's bring in uh, another concept, uh, how farming practices may play a role. And uh, Alex Portashaver with uh, Drawdown Marin, I know that that's a focus of the work that you guys do. I, I don't know that many people would necessarily uh, associate farming with climate change. Square that circle for us. Uh, wh why, why should we include farming into this mix here? 
Sure. So it's back to my original comment, which was um, stronger connection to the land. Mm -hmm. And this idea that we have a lot of carbon already existing in our soils, in our trees, um, in kelp, in the ocean, in sea grasses. And it's incredibly important that we preserve that carbon stock and we don't release it into the air. And so when we think about it from or in the context of farming and ranching, um, what are the practices that we can uh, implement on those lands that keep the carbon in the ground? So there's a lot of work that's been done on this through the Marin Carbon Project and with partners like the Carbon Cycle Institute and the Marin Resource Conservation District. They're working with farmers on the ground to develop what they call carbon farm plants. Mm. And they identify specific practices that if applied to the land would sequester carbon sometimes even beyond what that particular farmer ranch is emitting. Mm. And and so just so we can get the, the concept in mind, so every time that a field is tilled or a crop harvested, some amount of the carbon that was in those plants is being released into the air, plants and soil? Yeah, absolutely. And actually... Um, an example of a, a carbon smart practice is no no tilling. Don't mm. don't till the land at all. Instead, mm-hmm. um, spread manure and plant alternative flowering crops during the off season. So that's another way to preserve that content versus digging up the land so that you can then plant your crop in the following season. And just to quickly highlight uh, some of your work before we move on to some of the other topics we want to hit on. So this is uh, part of the focus of Drawdown Marin is working with uh, local partners to spur these kinds of changes. Exactly. So we have six working groups, and they're focused in six different areas. One of them is carbon sequestration. And yes, it's about accelerating existing efforts. It's also about identifying new ideas. The carbon farming work is obviously an existing idea that we really need to rapidly accelerate and set an example for for other counties, cities, towns across the U.S. Mm. It's just one example. All right. And another area that uh, I think should be top of mind for a lot of people would be how we build our buildings. Uh, I read this earlier today. It took me a little bit by surprise. Apparently, the production of concrete, the concrete industry, is the uh, largest consumer of coal in California. So uh, a lot of uh, dirty practices go into making the buildings that we reside in, Ellie Cohen. Tell us, how does the Bay Area look differently in terms of the buildings that we make and how we make them 10 years from now? We will be using a lot less of the type of concrete that we use now. There are new forms that are being developed that can sequester carbon simultaneously. Uh, It needs to be scaled up, so it's yet to be proven at scale, but that's the kind of inventions that are happening as we speak. Uh, There are big efforts to uh, build tall buildings with wood so that you can essentially sequester the carbon that's in the wood permanently, at least for decades ahead, and giving Mm. us a stepping stone to solving our problems into the future. It's funny how a lot of these solutions are high-tech in a way, I suppose, but feel like a a step back to methods that we've used in the past. Indeed. Um, And we hear a lot about um, carbon capture technologies. I believe that we will be relying on those 10, 15, 20 years from now, but they're in very nascent stages around the world right now. And so for us in California, and particularly locally, on a county level and even on a community level, using nature to help sequester carbon, managing the open spaces that we have now, whether it's farmland or protected lands or even our own backyards to sequester more carbon, should be a a significant part of our climate solutions toolbox, particularly in the next decade. And it's not just for sequestering carbon. When we do that, we hold more 
water in the soil. It makes us more resilient to drought. It makes it cooler in the area when you have more vegetation. It addresses other of the challenges of climate change. So it's a multi-benefit solution that can really be win-win for everybody. If I could just add, too, on the low-carbon concrete Mm -hmm. um, idea, the Board of Supervisors in Marin actually adopted a low-carbon concrete code in November. Um, uh, This is a work of a colleague of mine who um, put together – a uh, pretty impressive working group, folks from California and Washington that talked about, like, what would the code look like if we developed it and really required people who are laying concrete to use, to Ellie's point, a material that um, sequesters carbon that is in the process of producing it is um, emitting less greenhouse gas emissions. So mm. um, that went into effect January 1st of 2020. And the hope is that we share what we learned through developing that code with other jurisdictions and then jurisdictions that have a lot of new development and a lot of major renovation projects um, would have a huge impact in those in those areas. Mm. So lots of stuff in the work. I uh, want to remind our listeners real quick before we move on uh, that they are listening to KCBS In-Depth. I, once again, am Keith Manconi. Today we are talking climate targets in California and the Bay Area and what it will take to make them more than words on a press release. Joining us once again is Ellie Cohen, CEO of the Climate Center in Santa Rosa, Alex Portashaver, Senior Sustainability Coordinator at Drawdown Marin, and J.D. Morris, the energy reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, tossing things back to you, Ellie Cohen, quickly, because uh, we are trying to fit a lot into the show. We only have so much more time left. But- but we've already hit a lot of topics. If uh, if I could just uh, give you maybe uh, 40, 60 seconds, what are the other things that we missed that you think that Californians and especially folks in the Bay Area should keep in mind for stuff that really needs to change over the next 10 years? On buildings, we need to phase out the use of natural gas. And I don't want to call it natural gas anymore. I want to call it methane gas, because that's really what it is. Mm. And we are leaking huge amount of methane from the minute it's taken out of the ground until it gets into your home and is used in your stove or for your heating. And we have the technology today to completely electrify buildings and electrify your stove, electrify your heating, and doing it in ways that are really ecologically and climate friendly. Mm. Uh, So uh, the one thing with methane is that it actually is a very powerful warming agent. It is about 83 times more powerful than carbon dioxide until it dissipates, which is around 15 to 20 years after it's in the atmosphere. There are some scientists who believe that if we can stop methane leaks and stop natural gas or methane gas production, we can make a big step forward, a giant step forward in reducing the impacts of climate change. And that's why a lot of folks are pushing for the electrification of new buildings. Yes. And so there are a number of cities around the Bay Area that are passing resolutions after they They've passed the emergency resol- the climate mm-hmm. emergency resolution. They are banning new buildings and, in some cases, even retrofits to um, include natural gas as part of that. Mm. All right. So there we have a list of a lot of things that can be done, a lot of things that are being done. But one thing that's striking is that a lot of these things are fairly controversial. You know, we're talking about things like where we build houses. We're talking about things like natural gas. A lot of people very attached to the natural gas that they have, don't want to lose it. So uh, bringing J.D. Morris back into the conversation, maybe you could give us some perspective on what, in your view, are the areas where we are likely to see some of these changes happen and some of the areas where, you know, we're likely to see some pushback. I don't know which areas are most likely to see change, to be honest, but I can tell you there has been pushback on uh, pretty much all the fronts that you just listed. The gas ban, first of all, I mean, just 
anecdotally, I think every time the Chronicle writes a story about one of the new gas bands, we get a lot of uh, reader feedback from, you know, pe- people really like their gas stoves and yeah. gas appliances. And there's a, a, a degree of a kind of a visceral reaction to California um, trying to go in a different direction. That may be something that becomes more accepted over time, though. Um, I think we're just going to have to see on that one. Um, you mentioned, uh, you know, housing policy. We've all seen, I think, how that's been playing out with um, SB 50, the big housing bill from Senator Scott Weiner that would, um, you know, try to, you know, really move toward denser housing around transit. There has been uh, quite a bit of pushback on that one mm-hmm. um, at the local level and from local governments who really want to preserve local control over how their cities are developed. Um, also, uh, I think one of the biggest uh, level layers of pushback that California has received on this front has come from the federal government. The Trump administration um, has actively worked to undermine um, California's ability to set its own uh, emission standards and fuel efficiency rules and, you know, combating the deal that uh, the state government reached with automakers mm-hmm. to try to preserve some of that. Um, so, th- I mean, so the fact that so that's much playing, the state can do on its own. Yeah. And it's like, uh, you know, I think what we've heard is a lot of a People feel like the progress that California has already made in terms of, you know, clean cars and requirements there is uh, being threatened. So at Mm. the same time that we're trying to go a lot further, we're seeing, um, you know, kind of an assault um, to undo some of the progress that's already occurred. Mm. Well, staying on the theme of uh, pushback, Alex Portashaver again with uh, Drydown Marin. I suppose that that just speaks to the uh, necessity of the sorts of conversations that you're having with uh, locals in Marin County and making sure that they're on board for whatever changes happen. Yeah, I think that's a part of it, right? Uh, uh, better understanding what the community needs, wants, and is willing to do. The, the other part of it is um, local governments, elected officials, counties, cities, towns, we need to make some tough decisions. We need to think about how we how we fund these efforts long term. We can't continue to rely on one-off grants from the state or other regional agencies. And, and that really requires a big mind shift on the part of the public and um, getting rid of some of our risk aversion. So mm. how do we publicly finance these measures? How do we say to the public, we have to pay for climate change. The government is not going to solve everything. So thinking through some of those bigger systemic changes that we can make at a local level and um, serve as an example for other local jurisdictions, I think, is really important. And then I think um, we're all, you know, we struggle with staff and funding resources and um, making decisions about what projects are going to have um, an impact, but mm-hmm. thinking about impact in a in a broader way. So mm-hmm. not just greenhouse gas emission reduction, but uh, as I said before, connection to the land or honoring traditional ecological practices um, or empowering communities that traditionally haven't been involved. The, we should really broaden our view of impact as we pursue climate solutions. Uh, out of curiosity, in those conversations, what are you hearing from folks in Marin County? Is there a desire to see these uh, changes happen? And is that desire backed up by a willingness to make some of these tough choices? It's a million dollar question. Uh, <laughs> That's why we got you here. I think that there's, there's passion and yeah. there's interest. And honestly, it is, um, inspires a lot of hope when you have mm. people who show up consistently to work on these. Uh, I think we get to a point, though, where 
the rubber meets the road and you have to make tough choices. I mean, housing, right? That always comes up in the context of Marin. I mean, one of the single biggest things we can do to address greenhouse gas emissions is to build housing near transit, is mm-hmm. to focus on infill development, something that Marin has consistently um, not prioritized. Mm. Um, it's something that we're talking about in the context of drawdown. But um, ultimately, like many other things, it's really left up to the community to tell its elected officials that these issues are important and to stand behind them so that elected officials can make those tough choices. And uh, quickly, closing thoughts from you, if you could. So in the decade ahead, as somebody who engages so much with the community, what would be your advice to folks out there that would like to see some of these changes, but they feel isolated from the broader conversation? How do they engage with all this? How do they push their own local communities to get involved? There's an emotional component to climate change that we don't often talk about. So um, I personally have been working on allowing myself to grieve. So people are angry. People are upset. They're not exactly sure what to do. So I think that's part of the process. Um, I think that, sure, you can take actions in your daily life. You can try to drive one less day to work. You can waste less food. And those are all important things, too, and, and help us um, remain hopeful. I think community organizing around the big issues is super important. So bringing together large groups of people showing up at meetings of elected officials and demanding that they take action is super powerful. And we've seen the youth movement, the Sunrise Movement and several other youth movements actually make a difference, um, uh, you know, working from the ground up. Mm. All right. So uh, food for thought right there for a lot of folks out there. going to turn things over to uh, Ellie Cohen with the Climate Center. Uh, Closing thoughts from you as well. How are you feeling coming into this new decade about the prospects for hitting some of these goals and hitting some of these bold targets, given all the rubber hits the road moments and challenges that we've been discussing? I'm an optimist. I was born with a happy gene, though, and so I recognize (laughs) that, but I do really believe that we are at a turning point, just looking at what's happening with people uh, in California from these horrific fires in the past several years and what's happening in Australia and all over the world. People are understanding that climate change is happening regardless of what political party they're associated with, and people want action. The exciting thing is that we can make a difference, and we're seeing it in local communities around the Bay Area and around the world. The city of Copenhagen is committed to net negative emissions and net zero emissions by 2025. Um, The city of Santa Monica is committed to, with money behind it, to getting uh, uh, 50% of their citizens out of cars by 2030 using other kinds of micro-mobility, whether it's an electric car or uh, an electric bicycle or a scooter or whatever it might be, and mass transit. So there are things that are happening right here in California and here in the Bay Area that this can take off. One last point. We're going to have to pay for all of this. Mm. It's going to be very expensive. It's very different than how we've grown up in our uh, uh, spendthrift ways in the uh, United States. And it's time for us now to start thinking about what are the mechanisms that engage every person. And one of those that I believe needs to be implemented in California is something called fee and dividend, where essentially we pay when we are emitting carbon at all levels of society, but every person gets a dividend from that so you can invest that into living your life how you want to live it. That's one step. Another is a frequent flyer fee. There are creative things that we can do to raise those monies on the local basis, on the state basis, and federal basis. We're going to need to implement those soon so that we can begin to... 
enact the laws that we need in order to move forward in a safe way for everybody. All right. So some grand ambition there. I will give the final word uh, to J.D. Morris with the San Francisco Chronicle, though. As somebody who has been watching the energy issues play out in California for a while and somebody who's reported on how the climate debate is shaping up uh, within the Bay Area specifically, I'm just curious for your thoughts on what you're going to be looking for in the coming years, what you're going to be paying attention to, to tell you what direction we're going in, whether we're going in the direction of taking these goals seriously or whether we're going in the direction of, you know, making these grand pronouncements and then leaving it there. So I have two thoughts. The first, um, you know, I spend most of my time at the Chronicle reporting on PG&E and mm-hmm. all of its many challenges and problems. And I just want to stress that what's going on there in terms of the safety of California's electric grid is inextricably linked to everything we've been talking about today. Um, you've heard the word electrification used, trying to shift away from natural gas. It from my vantage point, if the grid cannot stay safe and stop prevent and uh, stop, you know, being involved in these massive wildfires and other issues, the ability of California to fully electrify in the way that um, folks active in the climate change space want it to is much more of an open question. Um, the other thing is that you know a, a lot of the gains that we've made in the last decade, um, specifically in the electric sector are uh, largely invisible uh, to uh, the average person's daily life. I mean, where PG&E gets its energy from, the fact that, you know, these CCAs are coming in from the average consumer's perspective, their lights are still turning on. It's not that they don't really see that, right? Lights don't turn green. Right. So what's going to have to happen now, though, like what we need to do in transportation and all of these other places, that's when California is really starting to ask people and try to in a significant way, force real visible changes in Mm. people's lives. Like, don't use gas stoves anymore. Switch to induction. Don't use a gas heater anymore. Switch to electric. Take public transit. Buy an electric car. Drive an electric car. Allow your neighborhood to be denser and taller and all of that. Um, And I just don't know how that's going to play out. And that will be... um, Something I'll certainly be watching very closely. All right. And so will we all. A lot to... uh be watching out for in the coming decade. We are going to round out the show right here, though. Once again, I want to remind our listeners, we have been speaking to Ellie Cohen. She is the CEO of the Climate Center in Santa Rosa. Ellie, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Speaking as well to Alex Portashaver, Senior Sustainability Coordinator of Dry Down Marin. Thank you to Alex as well. Thanks. It's been great. And speaking to J.D. Morris, once again, the energy reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you. Thank you. And you've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Remember, you can find past editions of the program online at kcbsradio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Manconi. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.